0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
1: I feel like who art ed. I'm to slice it. Who art ed? Mr. Out. Wood <laughs> art ed me. Yes. Either way, it, it works I, I know. That's not a Great start. Okay. Welcome to Who Arted weekly art history for all ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. And today we're going to be talking about Eve Klein. And I am very excited because my guest today is a fellow art teacher and someone who I have considered to be a sort of distant mentor, even though he's been unaware of it, because I have been listening to him and reading articles for years. Uh, welcome, once again, Tim Bogads from Art Ed Radio and the Art of Education University.
2: Well, thank you, Kyle. I am super excited to be back on the show. Uh, when you reached out and said, oh, let's talk about Eve Klein. I was like, yes, we need to. Uh I I don't know, Uh, you and I were talking off air just a bit ago about how there's not a ton of work to talk about, but yet I still think he's made some incredible stuff and was actually pretty influential. So hopefully we can make this an interesting one. But uh, thanks for the invite once again. And like I said, I'm I'm thrilled to be back here.
1: And I'm, uh, like I said, happy to have you as always. And so now to get into it, as you said, Eve Klein had sort of a short but very memorable life and career. He was born April 2nd, 1928 in Nice, France. His parents were both artists. His mother, Marie, was part of the art informal movement. And I feel like this is a good time. Are you familiar with the art informal movement? Because that was one, like, I look, I had to look it up.
2: So last week when I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, it was literally the first time I had heard of that. So uh, I'll just go ahead and say, no, I'm not familiar.
1: Yeah. So it it's one of those obviously smaller movements of art history that it's not front of mind. I recognized the term, but could not have defined it at yeah, the couldn't time tell you that anything I first about read it. it. Um, but. Basically, the art informal movement was part of that. um, I lump it in with like surrealism and Dada, that sort of Mm -hmm. against the rational composition and those traditional formal aesthetics. It was very experimental. And I feel like that very perfectly foreshadows what we're going to get into throughout this story um his father was also an artist Fred Klein was a post-impressionist painter um which I think most of us are much more familiar with
2: I was gonna say much more traditional
1: yeah so interestingly uh I I I guess I gotta say which Klein because I was gonna say Klein (laughs) you know but um Eve Klein studied a lot of things and not just art. In fact, his first passion was not the visual arts. His first passion was Judo.
2: Yes, this is like my favorite fact about him, because not only did he love Judo, he was really, really good at Judo. I think he he got to like fourth uh, level black belt, like a literal international master. Like he studied in Japan and was like. I don't know if we want to say a worldwide phenomenon, but he was very well known for for his judo skill, which I I just love.
1: Correct. He was a 4th degree black belt, studied it in Japan, and I believe he was the first European to earn that distinction of 4th nice. degree black belt. Nice. Um and he he wrote a book about it, taught other people judo. Like he he was all in on that as sort of his first career. Um he had other passions for, you know, jazz, of course, in the early to mid 20th century. Hmm. Um, Obviously, like every artist, loved to read literature, um, and I guess he was also into Eastern religions, which kind of makes sense. There there was always a little bit of, like, a mysticism about him, and... Um, I've read that related to his his judo, he sort of built some mythology around himself, yeah. claiming he could levitate and had learned all these other things that, you know, the rules of gravity did not apply to him after <laughs> he had attained that fourth, fourth degree or fourth level of black belt and stuff like that, which I I always love someone who is willing to um, just make an absurd boast and. Why not? Why not?
2: Uh, You know, like you said, it's all about just sort of building the mythology around it. And then, you know, once you have that established, then you can really get away with anything as an artist, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of the reading that I was doing, I was reading this stuff. Speaking of mythology, I came across all of these stories from interviews and things that had been passed down that I'm just like, I'm not sure I entirely believe this, but, you know, like as someone of Irish descent, I'm not going to let the truth get in the way of a good story. And one of those great origin stories is he says growing up, you know, he, he was obviously his parents were were artistically inclined but so were his friends and so he said one day he's at the beach in nice and he and his friends um claude pascal a poet and armand fernandez another visual artist decided to divide up the universe amongst themselves claude claimed language armand um the animal realm and eve took the sky saying the blue sky is my first art work which again I I feel like that is something you know that came about much later in his career but it's just such a perfect story it is you know I want it to be true
2: yeah oh absolutely you do because that's something that just sort of was a through line for his entire career just the idea of the color blue obviously uh but also just the this idea of infinity you know just like these things going on forever and you know a lot of times you see that where you know this he'll come up with a painting or a sculpture and it's like the blue is all there is and so you know the the idea of you know the sky being an artwork you know really resonates and and like you said sort of sets up the story for a lot of his later work
1: yeah and i guess in um in 1949 he moves to London and that he apprenticed At a frame shop and that's where he starts To get acquainted with like pure Pigments including gold mm-hmm. leaf I didn't Realize this um, because Like my art history survey Courses and stuff way back in the day You know you, you read the paragraph About Eve Klein and it's mm-hmm. just like International Klein blue He did lots right. of
2: monochromes yeah, Lots of monochromes and like you said He loved his gold like, I, I, have, I have a story about gold later on the, that i want to tell but yeah he, he loved his blue obviously but also gold and also other monochromes
1: okay i just gotta say you can't throw out that you've got a great story and not share it Let's i i
2: promise it'll it'll come later we need we need to talk when, when he gets more into his conceptual stuff and i'll i'll share the story about uh, what he did with his gold
1: Okay, so we've got we've got a nice teaser for something coming up. <laughs> but he starts experimenting with pure pigments and I have read that actually like this work with pure pigments because as you and I both know, when you're working with pure pigments, sometimes um There are not so healthy chemicals involved in this, for sure. That that may have contributed to his his early death, because he passed Mm -hmm. away sadly, uh, just in his mid thirties. But. Back to the part where he's still alive. The late uh, 1940s and 50s, he's working on monochrome paintings. Mono, of course, meaning one and chroma meaning color. So it's all just one color. Like, um, Which I feel like so many people were doing that in that day. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. it, it was it was Eve Klein. It was Robert Rauschenberg. It was, you know, like how many different mo- like how many different stances on there can you have <laughs> on a monochrome? But yeah, he did it. Sure. His big ones were the blue. Um, he also did a lot with pink and gold, as we've mm-hmm. already alluded mm-hmm. to. But he didn't just stop there. Like He liked to experiment. And he actually worked with a chemist, um, Edward Adam. I'm sure it's like Edward Adam or something like that. But they developed, as we've said, International Klein Blue. It's his trademark color, uh, literally trademarked in 1957. And basically it's just this super saturated blue. Um, Mm -hmm.
2: well, can we just appreciate the brilliance of just like creating your own color and trademarking it? Like (laughs) it's incredible to me that he would think to do that. And, uh, like you said, it's not just any color. It is like, this it's so rich and it's so beautiful i don't know if you've ever seen uh international client blue in person but it's it's just gorgeous like you know it pops off the page in your art history book but then when you see it in real life you're like this might be the most beautiful color i've ever seen like it's absolutely incredible and yeah i just just have a lot of respect for him to for just thinking to create his own color and then trademark it I, i think that's brilliant
1: See, I'm conflicted on that because in all honesty, like I love a good blue. I've I've seen Eve Klein blue in person mm-hmm. and nothing compares to the in person. It's one of those things that just the reproduction cannot capture it because literally you cannot get this blue anywhere else. Right. Um, right. But and, and I love a good blue. I, I absolutely love a good blue. I feel a little conflicted, though, because I feel like it's a little bit of like the Stuart Simple Anish Kapoor kind of thing. Yes. Where it's like I hate the idea of a color being walled off and and blocking others from using something. I feel mm-hmm. like developing your own blue hats off to you, even though it's let's face it, it's basically ultramarine, you know, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, he he got something with these synthetic polymers to get it this ultra matte which helps with the saturation and Mm -hmm. all of that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. um and i respect that i just i i wish it hadn't been you know well this is my color and you can't have it you know fair um And, and the history of blue is actually something that I have always found really just absolutely fascinating with the idea that, you know, ultramarine used to be more valuable than gold. because Yeah, I was going to
2: say, it used to be like yeah. super valuable, right?
1: Yeah, because it, it came from the lapis lazuli stones, which like you already think, okay, we got to take these stones, grind them into dust. Yeah, I could see where that's a bit of a pain. But mm-hmm. that's actually the easy part because they exclusively for a long time we're getting them from like remote mountainous regions in Afghanistan so then they had to get them then crush them and then it had to be like it went through like i think 3 different filtering processes because 97% of it of the stone was not usable pigment And so like, it's just this incredibly labor-intensive process to develop it. And so actually the country of France had a contest. um, They offered a prize of I think it was 6,000 francs in the mid-19th century for somebody who could create a synthetic ultramarine pigment. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get our Prussian blue. I think it was Prussian blue that came from that.
2: It was. I actually just learned about this not that long ago. A non-art friend was telling me about like the history of Prussian blue. And it was the first like synthetic blue pigment. I was like, I had no idea. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah. And, and that's why, like, if you look back in the Renaissance, um, you know, artists actually would have in their contract how much ultramarine would be used oh, and where. And yeah. so, like, it was only on sacred subjects. Like, um, you know, Mary would have her uh, cloth be ultramarine and stuff like that as sort of that devotional thing, you know. And so to bring this whole thing full circle klein actually would talk about how he saw blue as sacred you know he talked about claiming the sky but he also saw the blue gold and rose as symbolic of sort of a holy trinity
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: and so going on You know, like I said, he created his own blue. He loved a good spectacle. Um, You know, there's that famous stunt with the humans covered in paint as living brushes, uh, creating work by pressing themselves against the canvas.
2: Well, and he turned those into live performances, too. So, like, a lot of... You know people would consider him sort of a, a forefather of performance art and things like that because yeah he would have his models in blue paint and he would literally like drag them around the canvas to create i think they're called anthropometries uh but then yeah he would have like an entire symphony there and just playing real weird music. There's one symphony he played during one of these performances that was a 20-minute long note, just a single note for 20 <laughs> minutes, followed by 20 minutes of silence. And that was the entire performance while these people covered in paint are being dragged around on canvases to create the the paintings. And so, yeah, like you said, it was, it was a spectacle.
1: Yeah, and – I feel like in some ways this is like that era where people started to look at the fine arts world and say, like, what is with these people? Yeah, like, I'm not you know, not, like not sure about these people. Um, and I think my favorite um, my favorite example of this where he's really pushing boundaries was 1958. He held an exhibition called The Specialization of Sensibility, and it was just a blank-walled, empty gallery. And he had a line going down the block. He welcomed people in, like, ten at a time just to see an empty space. And, And then just to take it to an absurd level that shows, like, he was doing more than just a little prank you know showing them an empty space he also served them drinks that were specifically formulated so that it would make their urine come out ultramarine blue oh no <laughs> <laughs> i had not
2: heard of that before yes. that's incredible okay but um the the empty gallery does give me a good segue into my gold story Because not only did he do this uh, empty gallery as an exhibit, he later went on to sell uh, invisible paintings. He would sell empty space as his artwork. (laughs) And so he would, uh, you know, line up the buyer and he would insist that they pay in gold. And so they they would have to get, you know, nuggets of gold yeah. chunks of gold i don't i don't deal with gold i don't know yeah. how it comes but they would bring the gold uh and then he would write out like a certificate of ownership and they would meet by the sign river uh and then they would give him the gold he would give them the uh certificate of ownership for this non-existent painting for this invisible painting. (laughs) And uh, they would hand him the gold. He would hand them the the check or the paper. And then he would insist that they burn their certificate of ownership. And then as it's being burned, he would take the gold and throw it into the river. And so... They exchanged everything. Uh, but then 30 seconds later, there's no proof that they've ever owned this invisible painting. And uh, it just uh, fascinating to me that a people would go for that and b that, uh, yeah, he just decided to to throw gold into the river because he didn't really want it, I guess.
1: Wow. Now, on on a related note, just a fun fact that reminded me, are you aware that there is a museum of non-visible art?
2: No, I've yes. never heard of this.
1: Yes, some artists created the Museum of Non-Visible Art in New York. And it's just, oh, my word. It, is, it just has like title cards for you to imagine. Imagine what what's there? Yeah. I'm not even
2: sure if I would go to that. I I, I don't know.
1: But uh, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, 70 years later, we're 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 all rehashing Eve Klein's I just way ahead of his time. Yeah. And so I guess after the break, I want to always talk about a specific work. And I think there is one piece we've been kind of alluding to some of the stuff around the margins. If you went way back, we actually mentioned this, I think, the first episode I had you on. Um, So after the break, we'll talk about Leap Into the Void from 1960. And now we are going to continue our look at Eve Klein and I I didn't want to do the thing I do to my students where I just everyone's I always start my art class by talking about a work of art with students I have them do a cold read mm-hmm. and you know how when the projectors on but there's no source it's just blue yes yes. <laughs> i have been known to just have that on and then be like oh i'm sorry that's a mistake and then switch it to an eve klein blue that's Um, that's that's a funny joke just to see the reaction (laughs) but i think there's a little bit more to discuss with leap into the void from 1960 Um, this is a photograph that he created Seemingly to prove his claim of levitation. Now, as you're looking at this piece, what's jumping out at you?
2: Uh, well, I mean, the fact that he's literally flying. It is. It is a photograph of him flying. And I don't know. My my favorite thing to do with it, and I guess we should describe all of it for what's uh, for people who uh, are not familiar. Uh, it's a street scene. Uh, there're buildings on the left side the right side uh has trees foliage street a uh, person riding their bike down the street and on the left uh there is i believe an apartment building and eve klein is up on the second floor of the apartment building literally leaping out of the window uh his feet are just off the uh the balcony uh he's a good 20 feet up in the air and his entire body is almost parallel with the the street Below him he literally looks like he's flying out the window of the building and so uh yeah my my first uh reaction to this my first response to this is always how like (laughs) how did he do this and you know that's that's always the question that uh, i ask my students when i'm showing this as well like how do you think he did this
1: And um, you know, just before we go any further, now that I've made you do the work of describing what the piece looks like, I will also point out if you're listening on Amazon, Spotify, or anywhere else that supports episode-specific cover art, I will put this image in the cover art for this episode. But yeah, that that's also the question that I ask my students. I like to introduce um, photography, showing some different examples, trick photography, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the standard four perspective and all of that. Um with a lot of my students, one of the first things they say is green screen, you know?
2: Yeah. I always have oh Photoshop. And like it is nineteen what, sixty that he yeah. made it? Uh yeah. Like I don't think Photoshop was happening back then.
1: Yeah, and for those who don't know how he achieved this, he literally did jump off of there. The thing that's not visible in the famous image is he had friends gathered around um, with – I don't. It's it's that like ring. It's not quite a net. It's like a tarp or a trampoline,
2: almost. Just basically a giant piece of cloth that's gonna catch him.
1: Yeah, it's it's the kind of thing you would see in like those old cartoons that I never imagined they actually had in the real world. But yeah, they were gathered around to catch him. And so what he did was he set up the camera essentially on a tripod to get a fixed um a fixed position and so he took one shot of the street with nothing there yeah
2: just an empty street yeah with with the person riding the bike off to the right side uh and then a second photo of him leaping he literally did leap out of the window uh they caught him but then he used you know some some magic some photography tricks to combine uh, the leaping on the top half of the photo and the still shot of the empty street on the bottom half to make it look as though he's leaping into the void, into the the empty street.
1: Yeah. And for those who don't know, the magic was essentially an exacto. He's just like a composite of the two, two shots put together. Um, and... It it worked nicely. Now, this image I've seen reproduced in lots of books and stuff like that. I did not at first realize that he put this on the cover of his own newspaper. Um, He printed up his own fake newspaper for just a single day, November 27th, 1960.
2: That's that's such an Eve Klein thing to do. You know, let me (laughs)
1: me just print my own
2: newspaper for a day.
1: It really is. And, you know, he puts up this headline that declares the painter of space leaps into the void and he claims he went he won the space race and, you know, makes all sorts of winking comments. <laughs> um, but I think what's really telling is. As he talked about stuff, I I always find it frustrating because I never know, like what he is saying Earnestly, And what he is saying sort of tongue in cheek, you yeah. know, because yeah. he talks about leaping into the void and that he is doing all this stuff. And, you know, obviously there's a certain amount that's absurd there, but he also talked about how as an artist, he's not simply painting or representing the void. He's out there. He's becoming Mm -hmm. a part of it,
2: Mm -hmm. you know? Well, and he talked about how he never wanted to use lines in his artwork because lines are constraining, you know, he didn't want the color or the space or anything to be hemmed in. He wanted to just think about things being able to go on forever. And so, yeah, there's this weird mix there of, yeah, like earnestness and also just some weird boastful stuff that's kind of out there and it really is it's tough to tell the difference sometimes
1: yeah because he would he would say stuff that's really sort of thought provoking about Mm -hmm. trying to not represent but be out in there and like you said his talk about lines being constraining and then he would make these absurd comments about how he hated birds because they put (laughs) holes in his most beautiful (laughs) artwork the sky and it's just like you know I, I got to call for a timeout. Like, are are you okay, dude? <laughs> but in this work, I do grudgingly have to say, there's something kind of beautiful about this. There's a commitment to the bit and a willingness to push it further than like anyone else was willing to go at that time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, that's some of the... The power behind his work because he is willing to, for lack of better term, to dive in uh where where people, you know, would not generally go. He's doing things that no one else is doing. He's pushing them beyond uh, you know, where where most artists you know, would would generally go. And so he really is pushing the limits on what can be done with performance art with painting with how we talk about art even and like you said i i I think he deserves a lot of props for for all of that
1: yeah and the thing i keep coming back to as i'm looking at this i've been thinking a lot about what we're appreciating in art um you know uh, on a recent episode i had um the author of a new book uh the mona lisa vanishes and we were talking about how you know what we see in the artwork can make it good but it's the Mm -hmm. story that makes it great that elevates it and gets it that that sort of resonance and as I'm looking at this I'm wondering do I like this photograph because of what's in the photograph or is this because it to me feels symbolic of everything that Eve Klein represented in his Boundary pushing artwork and the Mm -hmm. stories about him and the personality behind him. Um, And I I gotta say, I think I'm, I think I'm, it's more to me, this is just like a symbol of everything that, you know, calls to mind everything I know about him.
2: Yeah, it's kind of the culmination of a lot of what he's been doing and I don't know for me I I personally I like the artwork but one thing that you know I've noticed over the past I don't know decade decade plus in the classroom is that you know when I first saw this photograph I was like oh my god how did he do this this is incredible uh and now when kids see this they you know there's just so many photo editing tools and so many ways to create stuff it doesn't necessarily have that resonance with them and they're, they're just saying oh not a big deal he he could you know fake this he could do whatever and so uh i think for me personally you know it's, it's about the photograph i think it's very intriguing it captures your attention it makes you ask how and i love that but now when when people are seeing it for the first time i don't know that it brings up those questions uh, as much anymore and so maybe for for people now it might be like you said more representative of the entirety of his work and and the stories behind it is are kind of where we focus our attention now and where where we spend our time now as we we talk about this piece
1: yeah i i think you're probably right in that as always but uh i guess to wrap this one up where do you think this one belongs is this one for the louvre is this one for the lab is this one for the lou oh
2: 100 for the louvre for me uh not only is he french so it belongs there (laughs) uh like you said i i think he was a very important artist i think he was influential in a lot of ways uh you know whether that be just simple beauty and creating color and finding effective ways to use that beautiful color or just conceptual stuff that was pushing the boundaries further than a lot of artists were willing to go. Uh, If we can, you know, wrap up that career into a single artwork, uh, I think it was such an influential career that, you know, if this artwork shows that it it belongs in the Louvre.
1: Yeah, I would. I would pretty much agree with that although I you know always try to find a way to disagree with people. I was going to say every that. every
2: time I come on you can never <laughs> let me have my peace. You always need to disagree with me. <laughs> I, I
1: I think it's it's not even like a disagreement it's more of a yes and cuz I I do yeah, also yeah. feel like you know with his background developing his own pigments and everything, it feels like there has to be a lab component there, too. And oh, I feel absolutely like the intensity with which he he applied himself to everything, you know, there's there's something to be learned from that, even though if I'm being a hundred percent honest, when I look at his individual works, I feel like, I don't really like a lot of them. I like his blue. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. blue. Mm-hmm. Um but I also really love the idea of an artist creating their own blue and I love the fact that like twice inside of a month someone stepped on his pieces in the museum and like right. dragged the blue and left blue footprints around. Yes. Yes. Um but For me, it's like there's these stories and there are these things that we learn from with these pieces. And the physical work is just sort of a it's just a cue to remind us of those stories and Mm -hmm. the lessons learned from this really intense conceptual artist who was working in so many different ways and ahead of his time in so many different ways and influential in so many ways that to me it feels like it's almost more about the learning that I do from from this than than the aesthetic appreciation of the piece.
2: Yeah, for sure. That's very well said
1: yeah well thank you once again i really appreciate your taking the time to join me once again tim bogatz from art ed radio i almost said aoe live that time which was a real blast from the past I'm gonna say
2: that was oh man pushing a decade ago at this point but no thank you for the invite i'm always happy to come on nerd out about artistry i love talking to you kyle so thank you
1: thank you very much